Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to another episode of the Peristyle Podcast. This week, it's episode number 39. If you're not familiar with the Peristyle Podcast, basically what we do is we have a one-hour radio show on the internet each and every week talking about USC football. And as always, if you have any questions or comments for us here on the podcast, just drop us a line. Podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address. And as a, a tradition here on the Peristyle Podcast, our first segment, we always talk to the coach, Harvey Hyde. Coach, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here with you. All right. I'm a little under the weather, so I just have to apologize right now. My voice is not exactly 100%, but we'll get through the hour, get a lot of USC information in there. I just wanted to thank our sponsor, first off, of the first segment of the Peristyle Podcast, Southern California Tickets, sctickets.com is the website, or you can give them a call, 1-800-888-7287 if you need tickets for anything in Southern California, concerts, sporting events, the theater. Of course, that USC home game coming up with Notre Dame is just around the corner, Coach, Thanksgiving weekend. If you need tickets for that, give them a call over at Southern California Tickets. They can get them, and believe me, uh, can you imagine that's the last home game of the year already? It's it's crazy, Coach. I mean, this, I, this is what kind of upsets me, though, that USC only is getting six home games a year. As powerful of a team as they are, they have to be able to schedule some home patsies that'll just want to come here and get the payday, get seven or eight home games like some of those other conference, those other schools and other conferences get. You mean do uh, like the number one ranked team in the country, Alabama? Yes, or LSU or any of those. those yeah, or always, LSU or any of those Southeastern Conference powers. Yes, those powers always seem to get a lot of home games. And uh, well, you know, you know, talking about the polls and talking about those powers and so on. You know, that's why when you look at the polls, you I think the polls have got to be judged in a different way because they strictly are going on who's undefeated, who's not undefeated. I mean, if you're undefeated and you go through the conference and you play. Uh, some of the teams that some of these teams play, uh, you're going to be number one in the country. And if you're undefeated, you're going to be number two in the country. And if you're undefeated, you're going to be number three in the country. And uh, I really don't think that is the way to do it. And that's why when I do my poll, when I normally do it, I do it on the team that I think is the best team in the country. And number two is the team I at least want to play after number one and three, four, five down to the bottom. And, uh, and uh, I, that's why I, I'm not quite sure all these polls are what they're supposed to be. Yeah, so I assume you don't have Ball State in uh, your top five there, Coach, even though they're undefeated. No, I, I don't, but I'm surprised they're not up there. You know, like one of the since they're undefeated, maybe they should be four. Sure, why not? You know, they're undefeated. Well, well you, know, <laughs> they, you know, yeah, but you know what? You, you look at that and you look at these teams and the number one team in the country, Alabama, I don't think they'd want to play SC. I'm going to be honest with you. I know on a neutral site, if Alabama played SC on a neutral site, they'd be the underdog. And now they're the number one team in the country, but they'd be the dog. And, uh, you know, so those people that make the odds somehow know things that I never have been able to figure out how they do it. But they're really keen and right on top of those things. Well, you're in, in Vegas, fact, Coach. Yeah, huh? I figure you have all the connections in Vegas. You know what's going on there. You, you'd have all the... Uh... All the bookies would be coming to you for information. 
That's that's right. In fact, listen, l- let me tell you, I had two, I don't know if I told you this. I, uh, if I did, I'm sorry, I'm repeating it. But I had two on my other shows, radio shows, I had two guys on from different different casinos. I wanted to have them on because of the when SC went down last week, two spots after winning. I, I wanted to know their thoughts on that. And when SC was a 22-point favorite over Cal last week, and I said, I've got to ask you a question. All the teams above SC, now I want you to be honest with you, if you were making the line against SC and those teams on a neutral site, what would be the odds? Who would be an underdog and who would be the favorite? And both of these two uh, guys that make the lines, both of them, and I, they didn't know what I, that I had asked the other guy the same question. Both of them said SC would be a favorite in every single game. Now, a slight favorite in some, maybe against Florida, but they would be the favorite. So, you know, those guys are pretty keen on what they do. Definitely, Coach. But the one thing that you have to look at, too, when you look at those those lines, a lot of it has to do with public perception as well. If you, if you have a team that's a pick em or a, a one-point favorite or something like that, you, the public perception, if, if USC is a huge favorite in the country or if everyone thinks they hear about USC a, a lot of times or they like them, more people might you know want to bet on that, on the USC side, and that will change the lines a little bit. So the popularity of these teams also can have a little bit to do with those lines. But like, but I, I do agree with you. Like you said, if they were faced against any team in the country, neutral field, which obviously that doesn't happen, you would have to pick USC as a favorite at this point, even though they have that loss. You're exactly right. It could happen if it's in a bowl game type of situation. That could happen. And, uh, you know, but, you know, they, they still have to go through the process, and the process is really what it is. And, and uh, you know, and, and what teams do you know that are 43-point favorites in two games, 22-point favorites against a 21st-ranked team in the country, and would have had that covered, you know, at the end of the game? They could have scored if they – really wanted to, uh, but Coach Carroll showed good sportsmanship and let the clock run out and so on. So, you know, uh, it really, uh, you know, it, it, it's amazing. And yet, uh, you know, uh, their defense, what, six games, 23 points? I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, some of these guys could bring the they, – they better start bringing their lunch to the game, some of these offenses, because they're going to have to eat during the game before it's time before they score. They're going to get hungry. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious. And you have to look at the defenses. I mean, we're, we'll talk about this a little bit later on. Just so for everyone knows, a little program note, we will talk to uh, the Daily News beat writer, Scott Wolf in the second segment, and then we're going to talk to Dan Wykey about uh, the transfer of Broderick Green in the third and final segment. But, yeah, Coach, I mean, so much – attention is on this defense and it for the first time in the Pete Carroll era we're, we're seeing him it's almost like he's changing the offense just because he knows the defense is that dominant they're talking about punting being a good play when I don't ever remember USC offenses talking about that before just because they know there's no way a def, a opposing offense is going to be able to go 80 yards consistently on this good of a defense you're exactly right. I'll tell you, the three points that Cal got were lucky. They had a couple of uh, extra opportunities just because of the interceptions and the penalties and the field position that Cal got. So, yeah, you know, in, in some situations, I might punt on first down. Let the defense <laughs> play the entire game, 
send the punting, and maybe they'd run back an interception or pick up a fumble and run that back for a touchdown. I, I don't know if that's ever happened before. But, uh, you know, and, and I hate to see that happen to a team that's got so many great athletes on the offensive side of the ball, too, where every week everybody's talking about it, the offense, me included, as well as now other people picking up that same conversation. But these are young athletes out there trying to do their very best as far as on the offensive side of the football, and it isn't all their fault. But they're playing hard. They're trying to get it done. And the defense, of course, is getting all the recognition. And after a while, as an offensive player, you start to lose confidence. And your defense starts to lose confidence in you. So, you know, it's time really that the offense gets some success. And, you know, and I'm not saying they haven't scored 59 points or 56 points or so on. You know, but I'm talking about against an opponent where they line up and they call the right plays and they have a series going and they, they believe in what they're running and, and you know, and, and their quarterback sneak in the best short yardage play and, and, and get it done. So, you know, I feel sorry for the offensive side of the football because the de- defense is getting all the recognition, all of the recognition now. And the offense, every week, it's some type of statement in the headlines of the papers about the offense boring again or whatever, you know, you see it and and we talk about it. We definitely do. And I I think a lot of it has to do coach. It's not, I I think the frustrating part, at least when I'm reading the message boards and the fans all chatting on uscfootball.com, I mean, they know they have five, five star tailbacks back there in the backfield. You know, they're mixing match. You got one of them has got to be pretty, pretty darn good. You know, they have, you know, Mark Sanchez, who was the best quarterback in his class. You have Mitch Mustaine, who was like the best in his. You have, you know, uh, you know, so many guys at receiver, playmakers all over the place, five-star guys. Patrick Turner was a top-five guy. Vidal Hazleton, stuff like that. There's talent everywhere, offensive line as well. And it's frustrating, I think, for the fans and even the people that cover the team to see them put up 17 points against a, a decent Cal team, but not some world-beating defense. I mean, it, it looks like... There's so much talent there, but it's just not being put together in a way that it's going to be this cohesive unit that can put up a lot of points, especially now when there's these offensive explosions in the Big 12 and even the SEC and some of the power teams from there putting up 50 points a game, kind of like USC used to do. Well, you know, first of all, they don't play any defense. When you score that many points, you're not playing any defense, okay? So, you know, I mean, I think the Southeastern Conference is a great football conference. Don't get me wrong. They have a great marketing department, and, you know, they tell everybody how good they are. So everybody, you know, starts to believe they're that good. So they are pretty good, but I, I want to tell you that. And same with some of these other conferences. The Big 12, I, I think, is the best conference in America this year. I mean, some people might argue with me and say the Southeastern Conference is. I would say in the Southeastern Conference, yes, Florida can play with just about anybody. They're the fastest team in college football. So, you know, a lot of this is marketing and publicity and who's talking about them and who's voting for each other. You know, all the conference coaches vote. Of course, they're going to vote for their team to be in the top of the uh, the poll. So, but that brings more credibility to their conference and so on. But uh, you know, uh, SC right now is struggling offensively because they don't really have, as and I've been telling you this every week, they don't have an identity. Uh, what are they? As far as are they West Coast offense? Are they Norm Chow's offense? I would say that they're Norm Chow's offense without Norm Chow flying the plane. 
or without Norm Child driving the car. Now, of course, they have people that have played that system, played in that system, and know that system, and don't know really any other system, because that's all they've been a part of, but they still don't know it like Norm Child knows it. You know, you've got to be able to have an identity of what you are, like to say, hey, you better stop this play, because if we run this play, we don't need to run another, but we'll run it every single down until you stop it. Believe in it. Your team believes in it. You talk about it. You even tell the defensive players, now, we're going to run that play. We're coming here right now. Be ready for it. And you do it. You actually run it, telling them you're going to run it. But right now, I'm not sure if FC has the confidence in one of those plays because they haven't run them enough, and there's no rhythm in the alternating of the backs. The backs and the offensive line, whether you believe this or not, there's a rhythm between both of them as far as the line knowing how long they have to maintain a block or finish a block, and they have to know when that back and how that block back hits the hole and what he's going to do. They're all thinking together, and they are five-star backs. But they just start to get a feel of it, and, and there's a rotation going on. And, and, you know, is there such a thing as having too many five-star bats? Absolutely not. So I want to get that clear right now. You <laughs> never have enough great players. But what you do is you choose that player who is your great player, or the two players like they did Lindell White and Reggie Bush, and you go with that pair, and you pound that pair, and those are your two best players, and you know they are until one of them gets hurt and another player gets that opportunity. All right, we're here. But they haven't done that, and, and you know what I'm talking about. It's been hit and miss and whatever and who comes in and what play is going to be run, and, and I think it's very hard on the players because they may, they're trying to make a big play every play, like McKnight did the last game. I mean, I feel sorry for him. He showed off his athletic ability but he's trying to make a big play. He had a nice play. Just get up the field, hold on to the football, doesn't have to go for a home run, and, it, and he hasn't been treated fairly because when he came into USC, everyone was comparing him with Reggie Bush. Now, you can't compare anybody with Reggie Bush, so he's had to live with that, and unless he has that type of game or play, then all of a sudden he's had a disappointing day or he hasn't lived up to the press or what are the people going to think. And that type of stuff. So there's a lot on that offensive side of the football is to what's going on and what you really know that you know some of the people don't realize. Yeah, I agree with you on that, Coach. And also, you got a guy like McKnight. If he's only coming in every third play on average, he might try it a little too hard and make a little something extra out of his runs, and you could lead to something like a fumble like that. But we've talked about the offense a lot. Let's go over to uh, the better side of the ball. You could say the USC defense are the best in the country. Uh, I was on the uh, NFL Network today on their college football show, College Football Now, and uh, interesting question that the host asked me, Paul Burmeister, who he think, who I thought the MVP of this USC defense was. I want to get your sh- your thoughts on that, Coach. Who do you think the MVP of this defense is? Well, I, that's hard to say, and, and you know, each week uh, uh, someone looks better and better and better. I mean, it, it, they sort of move it around from Ellison before he got hurt to Cushing, who just I love Cushing the way he plays. I just do, and I love Matthews. I mean, I mean, Matthews can play anything. I mean, he's he's what you call a football player, okay? Malaluga, of course, uh, plays so hard and plays in the middle. Sometimes he plays really too hard. Can you believe people probably say? 
how can you play too hard? You can't play too hard (laughs) because sometimes you want to kill a guy so bad you miss him or you try to block him down and you don't wrap up and so on. And and you, because that's what you want to do. You want to damage the individual. You don't just want to tackle him. You want to damage him. You want it to be a head on collision. So, you know, you, you look at the linebacker crew and then my goodness, it depends what week it is. But, I think a guy that's really played consistently is Matthews. I think he's the best walk-on ever to come to USC. Now, you know, in my brief time that I can say that. Cushing is an outstanding player that plays hard. Maluga plays hard. Ellison plays hard. You know, uh, uh, this year the the defensive front really hasn't. uh, I don't think I could select one in the defensive front except for Matthews when he plays on the front as, as, as a, the most valuable in the defense. Uh, in the secondary, you've got great secondary play. Uh, Harris comes in for Ellison when he's gone and fills in just absolutely fantastically. Pinkert, I mean, Pinkert, Pinkert just is flying around the field. And In fact, on that tackle on television last week when the announcers made a comment on I think it was Malaluga hitting that guy. Actually, Josh, Josh just wiped that dude out on the sideline. I mean, he tattooed him. He had he had to open up a Josh Picker tattoo parlor. Uh, I mean, I mean, really, because he, you know. And then some of these guys, Cushing on and Matthews, ought to open up what they call it a hardware store, or where you sell nails and the other guy sells hammers. You know, it really does. That's the way they hit you, just like a hammer. And uh, I think they're, I think the defense is intimidating to an offensive team when they play them. Now, it's hard to believe that, but it is, because you have to watch the videos of the defense before you play this team. And you see some of these hits, and you see some of these plays that are going on. Like, you take last week's game against Cal, and you take Longshore. Longshore was replaced at halftime by Riley. Longshore didn't want anything to do with it. No, I mean back there. I mean he was running around throwing the ball and getting hit. He he remembered the hits that he had a year ago. He was already intimidated, and the receivers really they dropped passes, but they dropped passes because when they caught passes they got hit so hard. Not one guy, three guys. They had them all in a circle. The guy couldn't even fall to the ground because they had him <laughs> stood up in the air, and they were hitting him. So they're dropping passes when you see a, a receiver is open because they know what's going to happen to them. I mean, Taylor Mays put a couple of hits on people, and they're all smacking the receivers. Legal, legal hits. I'm not talking about non-legal hits. I'm talking about aggressive, defensive type of football. So, you know, what happens to an offense, they watch these videotapes, and they have a couple of those hits, and those guys say, hey, man, this is the real deal. And then, you know, and so they get, uh, you know, they get a little bit intimidated and they throw the ball a little bit too early or backs uh, try to break away to the, away from the hole a little bit too early because they think that hole's going to close up. And it throws a timing off in the rhythm of the opponent. So, so your MVP is the whole team. Is who? <laughs> the whole team. It has to be. <laughs> okay. They did that actually. I mean, I mean, I can't select one person. Yeah. I just cannot do that because it's not fair to do that. No, I, I agree with you. They actually have done that. I think at the Coliseum a couple of times, at the end of the game, they announced the uh, MVP. And I know it was at least the Cal game, the USC defense. So it's kind of a, a cop out there. But, yeah, it's hard to pick. I mean, Ray Baluga, obviously, he's a finalist for the Lombardi Award, one of the top four in the country. So you could name him. I mean, Kevin Ellison, I think, probably in the beginning of the year. 
I would have put him as the MVP. But Taylor Mays has come on strong, too. So many guys. Really hard to pick. Uh, one last thing, Coach, before we let you go. Uh, you know, we talked about the uh, the special teams a little bit. We haven't talked about too much. David Beeler has been really consistent. One of the things that just kind of got a little worse and worse, worse every week, and it hasn't really mattered all that much yet, but it is kind of a, a sticking point, is the punting game. It's just it's really been bad, especially the last few weeks. It's just not, you know, Greg Woodnick hasn't been himself, it looks like, back there. What have you noticed about the uh, punting game? Well, you know, uh, uh, that's a hard thing to say. You know, sometimes kids, uh, you got to be relaxed with a punter and you got to be able to uh, be fluid and, and kick the football and so on. I'm surprised. I, I really am. You've got to get a nice uh, touch on the ball and spiral on the ball and kick it, and he just hasn't done that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's going to be important, but field position is so important, especially when you play some of these other teams if you're fortunate enough to get in a bowl game and play one of the top teams in the country. And also the punt return, I'm, I'm going to tell you that, I, I just don't have any confidence in it. I mean, don't get me wrong, most teams that are at the FC level with the skilled athletes they have have a guy back there that they get one or two to five punt returns a year. They really do. Watch Oklahoma play. Watch some of these other teams. These guys are Busting them. Now, I'm not sure if it's because the philosophy of USC is that they don't work on it as much or they don't have a full-time kicking coach that really breaks down completely the coverages and everything like that. But I'm so surprised that, you know, we're happy if the guy catches the ball. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm not trying to be funny, but Tell me, isn't that the truth? You're happy if he just catches it. That is true, Coach. <laughs> so, you know, if you're worried about if you're not going to return it, then put a hands guy back there and tell him fair catch it every single down. Yeah, That's we... the end of it. Just fair catch it. We don't want you to run it. Put a tackle back there if he has good hands. Let him just catch the ball, and, and that's good. But it's not worth the chance of taking a turnover. Uh, but they're having a turnover. But if you're going to really work on it, hold up the, the force guys and hold up the, the guys that are coming down and try to get a return, man, I'm telling you, you got to have a burner. And I know they have some burners like Patterson and some of these guys that are not playing, and I don't think they're redshirting. Uh, Carswell, I think that's the way you pronounce it. They're burners. Yeah. Now, if they don't have the hands, fine. But, uh, you know, Stephon Johnson's a great player, but he's not a burner. I mean, he's, uh, you know, I'm not telling, trying to tell you slow. But he's not a he's not a four or five guy. Uh, I mean, he might run it, but you know, you got a guy have a guy back that's four four and four three five, and they can hit that seam, you know. I, and now McKnight, I don't know what his forty time is, but you know, he obviously doesn't have the hands and doesn't feel comfortable back there. So you don't put him back there. But somewhere out there, they got to have one of these guys that want to hit it, man. And and and. This is their this is their deal, you know. It's like like blast off, you know. They look forward to. It. They can't wait to. It. They just can't wait to get hit too. They hope someone hits him because it's and they, you know it's another fifteen yards on the penalty if they if they hit him when he's catching the ball. I think you hit the the nail on the head with the philosophy, and especially when the USC offense was so prolific, then they they just needed to catch the ball. They didn't need a big return. But now, if you're going to play more conservative and field position is a big part of it, and you don't mind punting the ball. You better get a good punter, and you better 
you know, get that punter working well, and you better get some good returns because that's going to set up your offense for a good field position. But, Coach, unfortunately, we are out of time for this segment, but thank you very much again for joining us and sharing all your insights on the team. Well, thank you very much. I enjoy it very much, and uh, I'll see you at the game. All right, and if you need tickets, don't forget to check out Southern California Tickets, sctickets.com. Everybody else, we'll take a really short break, and we'll be back with Scott Wolf of the L.A. Daily News. The Peristyle Podcast will be back after this short break. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. Hey, USC Trojan fans, to get into the huddle of your Southern Cal Trojans, log on to uscfootball.com today for all the latest in Trojan football, basketball, and recruiting news. Ryan Abraham will give you an in-depth analysis, recruiting updates, and will answer your questions every day on the message board. So for all the latest in team and recruiting news on your USC Trojans, check out uscfootball.com, the officially licensed Southern Cal site of the Rivals.com network. We now return to the Parastyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. Welcome back, Trojan fans, to the Parastyle Podcast. And as promised, we have a very special guest in this second segment of the podcast. We have Scott Wolf, the longtime beat writer covering USC for the LA Daily News. Scott, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Ah, pretty good, pretty good. Just trying to get through the end of the season. It's kind of grinding away. Um, just wanted to talk to you a little bit about you know, USC, what's going on this year, and get some of your thoughts. Um, the USC offense, it's, I think this is a different offense than we've seen many times in years past. And uh, Sarkeesian even used the uh, P word earlier this week, the punt word, saying that punts aren't that bad. Do you remember the USC offenses before? They just never would even think about punting, let alone thinking that punting was a good play. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. You know, in past years, I can remember fourth and nines when, you know, Pete Carroll would go for it. And, you know, he didn't want to kick a field goal, let alone punt the ball. So I think it's a reflection of the fact Mark Sanchez is a quarterback and the first-year guy, and there's a, a different philosophy. I think the Cal game was a perfect example of that, where basically they just didn't want to make mistakes and turn the ball over, and that was their main goal and just rely on the defense. And I talked to Sarkeesian about it this week, too, and I was a little confused because they talked about how they you know, wanted to force Sanchez to throw safe passes, and it seemed to me that Matt Leiner did that for three years as his kind of top priority, and they didn't have to tell him to do it. And Sarkeesian told me that you know Matt Leiner, they could call an aggressive play, and if the receiver wasn't open, he automatically would go to the next option, usually a running back or maybe a tight end. But I think with Sanchez, he's so aggressive, they have to kind of rein him in and they don't trust him to make that decision. Yeah, he is kind of a gunslinger, and it doesn't seem to be really playing to his strengths the way they've used him in the last couple of games. I mean, if you make USC go 10 to 12 plays and run an efficient drive, that just doesn't seem to be this team's strengths, you know, they seem to be one of more 
you know, hit a couple plays, get a couple first downs, and then boom, hit the big one over the top. Yeah, well, I, I don't think they're a consistent offense, and that's probably the reason that happens. And, you know, it, the, if you look at the stats, you know, he's thrown seven interceptions. That's not really that bad after this many games. Um, I think the problem is the fans and everyone remembers, you know, how it seems like they're big interceptions or, you know, they tend to be turning points in games. And, you know, there's a few passes he might miss the receiver and, you know, for a touchdown, and people remember those. So it seems like he has a lot of plays that when they don't work, they tend to be big ones, and, and people think about those for a long time, kind of like, you know, John David Booty had a couple passes his first year. They got tipped, and it, one was intercepted, so everyone remembered that uh, for a year. Definitely, and, uh, you know, it's those key signature plays that kind of stick out in people's minds. I, I, I think the ironic thing is, if USC would have played this type of offense last year against Stanford, they wouldn't have had that loss. But I guess the the other side of the coin is they're playing it, you know, they played that way against Arizona, you could argue, against Cal, certainly. It's not that exciting for the fans. And I, do, you, do you see, I mean, you run a, a really popular blog. I think it's InsideSoCal.com slash USC. Um, people can check it out. But do you see a lot of people complaining about the offense not being as exciting now? Yeah, I think there's people that are, you know, unhappy with the offense and, and they complain about it. And I think uh, Pete Carroll's decided his defense is so good, you know, it doesn't matter what his offense does at this point, and they can rely on the defense. The problem is, you know, the Oregon State game, and, you know, when the defense did have a lapse and the offense wasn't able to make up that deficit. So, you know, it's kind of a can be a dangerous thing. I mean, they've only lost one game, but you know, around here, one game can mean everything. So, you know, as people that have read my blog know, I've said in the past that I didn't think they'd win a national championship without Norm Chow, and you know, unless some breaks happen the next few weeks, uh, they're probably not going to get back to the BCS title game. Yeah, they uh, PC, you know, Pete Carroll. You call him Caesar on the blog a lot of times. I think a lot of people think he's conservative in some ways, but there's other ways where he seems to be really wide open. You talked about the, the fourth down situations. He almost would rather not kick a field goal or like in the NFL, they'll kick a field goal any chance they get. How would you, I mean, do you think he's getting more conservative, less conservative? How do you think he's like maturing as a coach? Well, I always uh, felt like defensively he was a more aggressive coach his first couple of years. And then he kind of reverted to a, a more of a safe, defense, a zone coverage guy, and, you know, he seemed to blitz less the last few years. I, I think this season they're playing a little more man-to-man coverage because he's got veteran cornerbacks and he trusts his safeties. So I think they're a little more aggressive in that respect. But but I, I think he, you know, the NFL mentality is to play it safe, and, and he has a lot of that in him. So, you know, I, I don't know how aggressive it was to go for it on fourth down when you had Reggie Bush and Matt Leinert, you know, in your offense. So it was almost like a video game for him. And, you know, the other teams didn't have much of a chance. But I think now he sees, you know, things are a little more even. And he, he can't just, you know, go for it every time he wants to. All right. We're with Scott Wolf, the beat writer for the L.A. Daily News. Scott, there's been a lot of talk on uh, our site, uscfootball.com, about – Steve Sarkeesian, there's been a lot of criticism. People criticize the play calling. Uh, you know, 
you can argue one way or the other. I think they're just seeing a lot of five-star talent on the field and not as many points going up when they're playing the quality opponents. You know, forget what, you know, whatever you can say what you want about Sark. If, if Sark leaves, I mean, there's a good chance he'll leave for a head coaching position somewhere. It, you know, not this year, maybe next year. What do you think Pete Carroll would do? Do you think his ego would allow him to hire a big name offensive coordinator at some point if Sark does leave and kind of run the whole offense on it on the, the new person's own? You know, I've actually kind of looked into that because I've been wondering that myself. And um, I don't think he would hire a big name guy to come in. And he, I thought he might go, you know, the NFL route and hire someone from there. But the stuff I hear is, you know, it's more likely he would hire from within his own staff if Sarkeesian were to leave. And, you know, maybe that's John Morton, who is in the press box now during the games. Um, you know, there's a small chance he could always go and bring Carl Smith back, who's retired now, who was on the staff a few years ago and worked with him in New England. But that would probably be more of a long shot. But, you know, I don't think we'd see a Norm Chow-type guy or some guy that, you know, everybody's heard of and thinks is a big-time offensive coordinator. I think he would promote from within or, or maybe hire an old friend that he knew. Because I think the bottom line is he wants to be the offensive coordinator. He wants to control it. And if he brings in uh, somebody who's established, you know, they're not going to want to do that. Do you think he's kind of controlling a lot of what Sarkeesian does at this point? Or do you think Sark has the most control over the offense right now? Um, I think he definitely exerts his control over it. I mean, I don't think he's telling Sarkeesian what plays to call every time, but he definitely has veto power and he can make suggestions. And, you know, he's the one who's in charge. So, you know, when Norm Chow was doing it, you know, he had his way that he wanted to do things and they would butt head, heads from time to time. But uh, I don't think there's much of that going on uh, with Lane Kiffin or or Steve Sarkeesian, because, you know, Pete Carroll's kind of a mentor to them. So he he's used the, the word mold. You know, he likes to mold these guys, have guys he can mold. So uh, he wants somebody he can control. That's the way I interpret it. Yeah, it just does seem like so many guys on his staff are young, kind of his guys, and, you know, you don't have the kind of field generals like the Ed Orgerons or Tim Davis or Norm Chows or whatever, like the, the – the bigger personalities that people had to kind of look up and respect to. It's almost now is you have to look up to Pete Carroll, but the guys on his staff, I mean, they'll probably look up him as well, but they're all kind of Pete's guys on the team right now. Yeah. And, you know, I think you could look at it and say, you know, a few years ago, you could say who's going to be a head coach on this staff one day and you could find a couple guys and you look at it now. And if you were to ask that, you probably, you know, you might say Sarkeesian would be a candidate, but, you know, after that, it's kind of up in the air. So it's more or less guys that you know seem to be happy coaching at USC or working with Carroll. Definitely. All right, uh, Scott Wolf, LA Daily News. One of the sore subjects, I guess, have talked a lot about on the message boards is uh, the penalty situation. USC's down right near the top or bottom, however you want to say that, uh, in penalties. Pete Carroll's bringing out more officials. The, the thing that I question is, you know, you're, you're out there watching practice. They don't call a whole lot of penalties. I guess Pete Carroll's wanted to address that and get them to call more. But a lot of the penalties you're seeing 
are situations that don't really come up in practice where there's contact or you're hitting the quarterback or, or, you know, passive fair. There just doesn't seem to be those kind of situations occurring in practice because you're usually not finishing the plays and tackling the guy to the ground like you do this late. And especially you don't do that much in practice this late in the season. Do you see any way he could actually fix this without taking away some of that aggressiveness of his defense? You know, you can tell them, but, you know, I don't know if that stays in the players' minds during the game in the heat of the moment. And, you know, you're right. They have nine guys out there in uh, zebra suits, and, you know, they're not going to be, you know, committing some of the penalties like, you know, the illegal block in the back or, you know, some of the pass interference penalties like Kaluka Maeva's in the game uh, the other night. So, you know, they're watching everything, but the practice – you know, isn't quite the same as a game. And a lot of these penalties are, you know, just over-aggressiveness. And, you know, you don't want to tell players not to be aggressive. And, you know, he does. He talked to them on Monday during a team meeting about the penalties and kind of told them to be smart and stuff like that. But uh, the bottom line is I think he would take the penalties and keep the aggressiveness of the defense, especially when they're giving up you know, three points a game and just hope it doesn't turn out to be a problem and that they don't have any uh, close games the last three games of the season. Yeah, you mentioned that defense giving up, I think it's like 6.7 points a game or something crazy like that. Um, you've seen a lot of these USC defenses, all the ones you've covered, every one of Carroll's teams. Carroll actually came out this year and, and thought this could be his best defense where he normally doesn't say stuff like that. Do you really think I mean, talent-wise and scheme-wise and everything, that this is USC's best defense under Pete Carroll? Well, I think it's probably in the top two. I mean, I I kind of hesitate to say it's the best because I look back at the defense that had Matt Grudegood and Sean Covey and Lofa Tatupu and Mike Patterson and won a national championship. That was a pretty good defense. And, you know, as good as this defense is, I, I think one thing you have to – take into consideration is who have they played this year in the you know probably worst Pac-10 conference I can remember and uh, you know is that leading to the fact that they're you know holding these opponents to these crazy numbers I mean it's still a very good defense but it would be interesting to see how they would have fared you know if the Pac-10 were better than it is this season. Now you're an AP voter uh, you, you check out a lot of the games across the country. It's almost like the Pac-10 was this super offensive juggernaut, and now you're seeing them struggle on offense. A lot of different teams struggling, and there's some better defenses popping up where you look at the teams like the Big 12 and the SEC, especially the SEC, always known for defense. They're still a good defensive conference, but there's more like prolific offer, I mean, you know, greater offenses there in those conferences than, than what you saw in the Pac-10. Yeah, look, the Big 12 has just gone crazy this season with the offensive numbers that they're putting up. And, you know, it's not just Texas Tech, which always does it, but Sam Bradford of Oklahoma has had some incredible uh, stats this season. So, you know, that's kind of become, I guess, the passers conference this season. And, you know, Tim Tebow does some great things too. So, you know, that's very impressive. But I, I think when you judge the conferences, though, you know, more than that, it's look at the Pac-10's record out of conference this year. And, you know, everyone remembers the day they got 
shut out by the Mountain West Conference this season, and that really tarnished the reputation of the conference this year. And uh, you know that's probably one reason. You look at Oregon State; they're they're fighting just to get into the top 25, and you know right now they're in first place in the Pac-10. Do you put uh, a lot of any of the blame on the Pac-10 being down? On, on Tom Hansen and his leadership for the conference, it, it just seems like there's not the same kind of emphasis you have on on winning and uh, and putting out good football teams that gets you more national rep- reputations than than some of the other conferences do. And you have a team like a Cal flying out the night before their game on the East Coast for, against Maryland. I think they had to play at like 9 in the morning. And I think Oregon did the same thing, flying out to play Purdue, things like that. It just doesn't seem, I don't think that would happen in the SEC. Uh, do, do you think that it's coming from the top of the Pac-10, the leadership, they just don't put that kind of emphasis on winning in football? Um, you know, I think that's partly the case, and I think that carries over to the bowl arrangements that the Pac-10 has, which are probably the worst of the big top four conferences when you look at it. I mean, for the second-place team to go to the Holiday Bowl is a joke compared to where you see, you know, Big Ten, SEC, and Big 12 teams going on New Year's Day. So I definitely hold the conference responsible for that. And actually, uh, I just put something up on my blog today. It's an uh, uh, Oregon administrator just ripped Hanson and the league office to shreds in a radio interview, which, you know, usually you never hear anything publicly from people but he he criticized the conference too so i think there is discontent with certain aspects of the way the conference is run and you know no one's expecting washington state or you know normally maybe the smaller market teams to be great but uh you know it's just a i think it's a big picture thing where they don't seem to take the time to invest in their uh program like the SEC. I mean, even if things as simple as press releases and TV contracts, and you know, why is the Pac-10 on Versus, and you know, why why can't they get on ESPN or something like that? Those are the things that I think rile up a lot of people within the conference. Yeah, I mean, even the uh, Pac-10 Media Day. We talked about this earlier in the season. It's a half a day kind of thing. Where other conferences, it's like a huge, huge media event with golf tournaments and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. It's just, it just doesn't seem like they do it the exact same way in the Pac-10. They kind of do it their own way and focus so much on like academia as opposed to this is a huge business, a sports business, and we're going to promote that. Yeah, the SEC brings two players from each team, and the Pac-10, you know, you, you get one maybe. And I know the SEC media day takes two to three days to do so you have more time to interview people and that leads to more coverage so you know it is kind of you get what you pay for and you know definitely they need to reassess some of their practices yeah you de- you won't get the same kind of national media attention too. the the national columnists not are not going to come out for a half a day event uh in the pac-10 like you would at some of the sec or the acc stuff like that one last thing i just want to talk about the uh, bcs little bit. Um, it looks like there is a you know, sliver of hope there for USC fans to, that USC can somehow get into that Miami game, that national championship game. How do you see that playing out? And then overall, are you a, a fan of the BCS or are you a fan of some kind of playoff? Well, you know, if we could just do whatever we wanted, I'd prefer a playoff because I think that would always 
determine the best team. Some type of an eight-team playoff would be great, I think. And I don't think it would add extra time to the season. And, you know, you would never get the bowls to go along with it, probably. Or and the college presidents, I'm sure, would want to do what they could to prevent it. But, you know, that would be the best way. And I think... You know, if you look at it from USC's perspective, which, you know, everyone here, that's all they care about. Um, you know, it, I don't think SC would be an underdog against any team they played in a playoff. So, you know, even if they're rated sixth in the BCS rankings, I think the odds makers still think they might be the best team out there. So it would definitely aid them to be in a playoff system. But, you know, that said, I think the BCS is probably the next best thing which we have. So, you know, it usually works out. Uh, this year is going to be interesting. You know, I think it could be more interesting to see who from the Big 12 actually emerges from there more than the BCS because you could have a three-way tie for uh, one division of the Big 12 and then you got to go to a tiebreaker and you're going to have some unhappy fans, whether it's Texas or Oklahoma or Texas Tech so you know that that's where you get into controversy where you have all these teams with the same record and then it's a judgment call as to who is the best team instead of just playing on the field yeah and the, and I, I guess USC's best chance would be for a two-loss Missouri team to upset whoever comes out of the other division in the Big 12 uh, then it's going to come you know if that does happen then the Big 12 champion you know, that that made it to the the championship game wouldn't go to the the BCS national championship game. But one of the other teams that didn't make the the Big 12 championship game could still be ahead of USC. And it would depend on the human voters in the coaches' polls and in the Harris poll, I guess, to somehow leapfrog USC above them because they would rather have the Pac-10 champion, obviously if USC wins out and Oregon State loses, go to the national championship game as opposed to a team that didn't even make the the Big 12 championship game. Well, then you have that rule, too, that uh, you have to be a conference champion, I think, too, now that they've put into the equation. So, you know, it's the thing I don't like is, uh, you know, I see this so much at the Coliseum on Saturdays. Everybody's cheering against all these other teams to lose. And, you know, I know they want USC to get to the championship game. That's fine. And... You know, I think if USC wins the rest of its games, it might get to the championship game. But I, I just find it, you know, a little distasteful to be cheering so much against these other teams, especially, you know, the way I look at it, USC played Oregon State, who is, you know, like I said, fighting to be ranked in the top 25. And, you know, people are cheering for Texas to lose to Texas Tech, which is two top 10 teams. I mean, it just seems ridiculous to me. In the end, I mean, if if USC wins the rest of its games, it'll have a shot when it all plays out, I think. But, uh, you know, I think the fans should just worry about USC and not focus on rooting against other teams. All right. He is Scott Wolf, the longtime USC beat writer for the L.A. Daily News. Scott, thanks so much for spending some time with us, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Give my best to the peristyle. I'm I'm sure I'm their (laughs) number one writer yeah they all love you on the peristyle scott i'm sure that's what i think i hear (laughs) all the time thanks again scott everyone else we're on a real short break we'll come back and talk to dan wecky about the transfer of usc tailback broderick green 
are listening to the Peristyle Podcast from Los Angeles, California. USC Trojan fans, to get into the huddle of your Southern Cal Trojans, log on to uscfootball.com today for all the latest in Trojan football, basketball, and recruiting news. Ryan Abraham will give you an in-depth analysis, recruiting updates, and will answer your questions every day on the message board. So for all the latest in team and recruiting news on your USC Trojans, check out uscfootball.com, the officially licensed Southern Cal site of the Rivals.com network. It's time to get back to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. We are back for our third and final segment of the Peristyle Podcast. And as promised, we have with us uscfootball.com beat writer extraordinaire Dan Wykey. Dan, what's up, buddy? Hey, Brad. Everything going good? Yeah, it's just a, a, a Wednesday. I always look forward to talking to you. Right. Getting, uh, getting ready for the big trip up north. San Francisco for the USC Weekender Trojans taking on Stanford. But before we get to that, I just wanted to uh, talk about the story that you broke this week. Broderick Green, USC tailback out of Arkansas, decided to transfer. I just want to give you a chance to kind of tell what happened here and what's going on with Broderick Green. Well, apparently this this all started back in the summer. Um, I, I didn't know about it then. Um but, you know, Broderick had some problems at home, uh, some stuff going on, and he started to think about leaving. Um, and then, you know, over the course of the season, um, you know, his grandmother got sick and found out some other stuff that was going on at home. And he he said that he felt it was it was time for him to, to get back closer to home, that it had nothing to do with USC, um, and it had nothing to do with playing time. The coaches have kind of insinuated that, you know, probably playing time had something to do with it. Um, you know, I point blank asked Broderick if, you know, if he was the starter, would he have still transferred? And he said most likely he would have. But, um, you know, I feel like you could ask him that question 10 different times, 10 different ways, and you might get 10 different answers. I think, you know, you don't really know until you're in that situation. I think, obviously, for any, you know, 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid, um, your problems are compounded when you're forced to sit and watch and you feel like you should be on the field. Um, that's my opinion. I mean, that's not what he said. Um, he's made it really clear though, that he, um, that, that it had nothing to do with playing time that, you know, he loved being a Trojan and he'll be sad to sad to leave, but he thinks that's what's best for him and his family. Yeah. He's, it's not that far removed. It's just a couple of games ago. He had over a hundred yards rushing on, you know, he scored a few touchdowns this year. It's, it's I, I think the one thing, in this rotation, when you talk about the tailback rotation, if you brought something unique to the table, it gives you a better chance. Um, and I think Broderick brought something unique, especially with Alan Bradford being out, that he was really that only big back option. And it's not like Pete Carroll used him in, in regular situations a lot of times. Maybe that would have helped a little bit. But, yeah, he was unique in the sense that there wasn't really another big back on the roster. Well, they never used him um, in any important situations the entire season. Um, you know, he was, all his carries came in mop-up time. Um, but, yeah, you know, I mean, I think back to about, you know, maybe two or three weeks into the year um, when the coaching staff, you know, I wrote about it at the time. I know other guys mentioned it. Well, the coaching staff really wanted him to run harder. That They they didn't think he was using his size um, as well as, as he could and that he was trying to, maybe dance a little too much to be a, a little less unique and be more like Joe or, 
or Stefan or CJ instead of being, you know, this big bruiser who runs runs over people. I'm not sure he ever truly became that. Um, I don't know if that's just not what he's comfortable with. Um, you know, I mean, I, I remember I've spoken to him about this before, and he told me that in high school he wasn't a power back, he was a scat back. And I'm just looking at him like, you know, Brad, you're, you're, you're 240 pounds. You know, <laughs> lower your shoulder and hit somebody. And I think that was some of the frustration that the coaches had. I think that was part of the reason why maybe you didn't see him, especially when, you know, when the team was struggling in short yardage, you know, that would have been a great chance to, to try to try something new. And instead, you know, they went to Havili and they went to Sanchez to, to handle sneaks. And it was just kind of like, meh. You know, it was, it, it was, it was an afterthought. And what do you think this does to affect the, the team the rest of the way out? Obviously, you said he didn't have any significant carries, so it shouldn't, shouldn't really affect the team all that much. But it does affect them, at least as far as the scout team goes, and, and you know, and obviously depth. And I think it well, and I, and I think actually one of the interesting things is, um, you know, let's say they go to Stanford and they win by forty, you know, and they're up huge in the first half. Um, then you know, now in the second half, Mark Tyler is getting a ton of carries. Mark Tyler hasn't especially been healthy for the last three years. You know, I mean, he had an injury in senior high school. Richard last year had injuries. Missed a, a big chunk of time this year with a quad injury. Um, I mean, hypothetically, I mean, you're looking at in garbage time now having to go to the guys that really your your group of three that are starters and, you know, and Joe McKnight, C.J. Gable, and Stephon Johnson, who might be getting – meaningless carries late in the game. I think that's kind of a little interesting subplot just in case. I mean, if Mark Tyler got hurt or if he couldn't handle such a big load, then, I mean, you know, now you're putting those guys at unnecessary risk. I mean, they could do some other stuff. I mean, they could use Adam Goodman or, you know, one of the things they've done in practice on the scout team here this week um, to kind of help out Curtis McNeil, who, who's going to redshirt. I mean, I don't think they, they're going to burn his redshirt at this point. That just seems silly. Um, is that, you know, DJ Shoemate has now moved – to tailback a position where, you know, I know talking to him in the summer, he thought he could end up there. Um, you know, he's played wide receiver, he's played fullback, and now he's doing some stuff at tailback. Um, maybe he's a guy who gets carries now kind of in that mop-up time, but, I mean, he's really only been in the position for two days now, you know. Um, I don't know if that's enough time to where you're totally confident to give him tailback carries. Um right away i mean that's those are totally different protections than the fullback um you know i mean he's essentially learning the offense again for the third time right now so i think that's kind of a little interesting subplot where especially this week when they don't have the buy to really really figure out what they're going to do is if they're up big what are they going to do when they need to run the ball is it going to be 25 carries from Tyler? do you really want to do that to to a guy who's coming off a quad injury and a guy who's injury prone I, i think that's interesting yeah, well, we'll have to see. I, I'm not sure if they're going to have a 40-point lead the way they're playing right now just because Pete Carroll's really kind of shifted the focus on the offense to say, hey, you know, last year against Stanford, uh, you know, they could have beat Stanford if they if they played a little bit more conservative, just ran the ball and stopped throwing the ball when they didn't need to. It looks like that's Pete Carroll's doing that now. just not going to be as exciting, though. And if you at one point we didn't bring up, I was talking with Scott Wolf in the last segment, you know, if you're not putting up 40, 50 points, you're probably not going to get as many opportunities to get some of those reserve people in. So you might not even have that problem, Dan. You know, yeah, I mean, that, that's just, I mean, that's just a hypothetical. I'm sure, you know, that's a problem that Pete Carroll would happily take on this weekend is have to worry about what to do when he's up 40 in the second half. 
Um, you know, but I, you know, you mentioned the, the the play calling and kind of the conservative offensive game plan. I think you know that's something that we've seen. You know, uh, against some defenses that have been better and some defenses that they've actually feared a little bit. You know, Arizona's defense was a defense that they respected. Cal's defense was a defense they really, especially their ability to intercept the ball. You know, and I wrote about this. Um, I think it was yesterday. Um, I'm sorry, the days run together when you're out there every day, but. Uh, that, you know, the defense is really starting to kind of dictate what they're doing on offense. Um, and by the defense, the USC defense, you know, Sark is well aware of the fact that teams are probably not going to be able to put together an 80-yard drive against them. That the way that they're going to score points, the other offense is by, by getting the ball on a, from bad field position on a short field or by getting it after a turnover. So that puts more of a premium, especially when, when USC is on its half of the field, to, to, you know, make sure they take care of the ball. And if they punt, they punt. So be it. the defense is probably going to get the ball back pretty soon. Yeah, punt used to be a four-letter word, Dan, before you got here. Uh, I mean, they would never punt. Like they, Tom Malone I, I, wanted actually, to Ryan, leave. I just consulted my dictionary. Punt's a four-letter word. It is. But it was it used to be a different connotation. <laughs> Tom Malone wanted to leave after his junior year because he would never punt. They were scoring points so much. It was just they never had an opportunity to punt, so he couldn't show his wares out there, and he was thinking about leaving as a junior. Uh, you know, now, now they obviously don't have that problem, but it's kind of been a whole shift in the offense from we would never punt, we don't even like to kick field goals, to punting's a good thing. I, I just don't remember anyone in the Pete Carroll era ever saying that. Well, and, and I think it's, like I said, it all goes back to the defense. I think, you know, at this point in time, I mean, how can you just not be supremely confident with that defense on the field? I mean, Cal's a good offense with good, really good running backs, and they looked awful on offense. I mean, really, that USC did such a good job against them. Arizona, another really good high-powered offense that, you know, USC shuts down. I mean, Oregon, a team that's run over pretty much everybody in the back then, shut, shut that, like, just absolutely destroyed them, shut them down. I mean, they've taken these good offenses. You know, maybe they haven't played a gr- an absolutely great stellar Texas Tech kind of. Well, they for sure haven't played an offense that good. But they've taken some good offenses and made them look completely inept. I think that I, I, I think that right now is especially at this time of year when you know when, where Pete Carroll said, you know, we just need to keep winning. Like you know, it's the fourth quarter of their season. They're just trying to win every game. But that's probably the best way to do it. I mean, don't take any unnecessary risks right now. And if that's a little close to the vest for people, then I think that's one thing. I also think, though, too, that that a lot of it's predicated to on the defense they're playing. I mean, Stanford, I think, has seven interceptions this year. Cal had 17 going into the game with USC. So, I mean, you know, I think that they'll be a little more willing to chuck the ball around this week than they were last. Yeah, we'll uh, definitely have I to mean, see. It, I mean, you th- like Cal is a much better running team. They have better running backs than Stanford. And Stanford, they almost run exclusively. I mean, that's really what they do. They're going to have a hard time moving the ball, I think, on USC. If, if, if USC can hold Cal to three points, it just seems like they're going to have to have a good shot at shutting out another opponent if they shut out Stanford this weekend. What do you think is going to happen in this game? What's your score prediction? Um, I mean, I think USC probably – well, I think USC wins. I think it's probably something along the lines of, um, you know, 31-3 to three, maybe. Wow, not too bad. I, I, I have to give some props to uh, – both uh, Tom Hare and Ted Benegas, they they do our pregame, you know, our pre write ups for each game, previewing all the games, 
and against uh, Washington. They both picked the same exact score, 56 to nothing, and they've got it both <laughs> exactly right. Uh, so that's pretty good. Uh, I think I'm going to go with 24 to nothing this week. I just don't think they're going to put up as many points and be a little more conservative on offense, which I, I know the fans don't really like all that much, but I think they got to do it out of necessity. But I just don't see Stanford putting up any points on this team. We'll have to, we'll have to see what happens, though. Yeah, you got to keep winning. The, the one thing that I think is interesting, real quick, I know we're probably running out of time, is that um, the only uh, big downside to, to playing so close to your best and, and, and being in a one-possession game like they were against Cal for so long in the game, I mean, it was a, a one-touchdown game, is that if for some reason that there's a slip or something freakish happens, the game can be tied like that. And and you don't. And I think especially with a team like Stanford, you don't want to keep them around, especially at home. You want to come out quick. You want to try to take the crowd out of the game. I think that, especially on, on the first possession, um, for USC to throw the ball, a lot, both surprise, surprise. But I, I think you look for them to, to try to get the end zone through the air on that first possession because I think they want to put their foot on, foot on the cardinal throat. All right. Well, Dan Wykey, doing a great job for USCfootball.com. Thanks for joining us again this week. Sweet words from you, Ryan. I appreciate the, uh, the compliment. Oh, I wish you no, no so problem. Nice I, wish you, I wish you spoke so kindly of me off air. Yeah, no, don't hold your breath on that one. But everyone else, thank you very much for joining us this week on the podcast. We'll be back next week. USC has a bye week, so we'll be talking about the Stanford game and then looking forward to the two big games with their rivals, UCLA and Notre Dame. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can now download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player. Just search for Peristyle Podcast the next time you log into iTunes.